tonight, we have a very good friend of the VMHC, Brent Tarter. Brent did his graduate work at the University of Virginia and was a documentary editor for the Virginia Independence Bicentennial Commission from 1974 to 1982. He was also senior editor at the Library of Virginia from 1982 to 2010. He is also a founding editor of the Library of Virginia's Dictionary of Virginia Biography Project and a co-founder of the annual Virginia Forum. He has contributed entries on more than 100 Virginians to the Dictionary of Virginia Biography and other reference works and published numerous articles in scholarly journals, including our very own Virginia Magazine of History and Biography. Brent is the author of a number of books, including The Grandees of Government, The Origins and Persistence of Undemocratic Politics in Virginia, Daydreams and Nightmares, A Virginia Family Faces Secession and War, A Saga of the New South, Race, Law, and Public Debt in Virginia, and he will have a new book coming out in 2020, Virginians and Their Histories. He has also been a co-author with the Campaign for Women's Suffrage in Virginia, which will be coming out in March uh, to commemorate the centennial of the 19th Amendment. That is uh, a work that he did with Marianne Julian and Barbara Batson. Uh, he is also co-editor with Warren Billings on esteemed books of law and the legal culture of early Virginia. But he's here tonight to talk about his most recent book, which is Gerrymanders, How Redistricting Has Protected Slavery, White Supremacy, and Partisan Minorities in Virginia. Please give a warm VHMC welcome to Brent Tarter. Thank you, Adam. It's nice to be back here at what I still call the Virginia Historical Society. I've been coming here since 1972, been a member since 1974, and I'm sure I will never get wrapped around a new name. Uh, it's good to see so many people come out on a cold evening. Um, I must take it as a given that most of you know what a gerrymander is and are interested in the topic, otherwise you wouldn't be here. But let's start with a definition anyway. A gerrymander is a deliberate alignment of electric, electoral districts to influence who gets elected and who does not in order to influence what kinds of public policies get adopted and what proposals do not. This definition takes us beyond what we usually think of with gerrymandering, which is partisanship only something that Democrats do to Republicans or Republicans do to Democrats. But in fact, the object is not to get elected. The object is to influence public policy. We always have to keep that in mind. And it's very important to keep it in mind in this particular year because the General Assembly members that we elected back in November will do one of two very important things. Well, they're going to do a lot of important things. They're going to try. You know, a new Democratic majority after 20-some-odd years of Republican majorities means there are going to be a lot of proposals put forward that never had a chance before, and they might have a chance this time. But two things that I think are of the utmost importance and did not even make it into the governor's State of the Commonwealth speech last night. One thing that they may do 
early in 2021 is redraw all of the district boundaries for the House of Delegates, the Senate, and the House of Representatives. The Democrats will do that for the first time since 1991. Or the other thing they could do this year would be to submit to the voters a constitutional amendment to create a bipartisan redistricting commission that would take the political pressure off the legislators when it comes to drawing districts so that you have less of a chance of a partisan gerrymander. They will have to do one or the other. This year they will submit the amendment to the voters or not. If the voters ratify it, then that changes everything for the foreseeable future in Virginia politics because we will no longer have partisan gerrymanders that give one party an extra boost on election day. Or if they don't do that and the voters don't ratify it, then the Democrats will redistrict the state next time around. Either way, it influences Virginia politics for at least a decade, probably longer. So the assembly members now are one of the most important assembly groups of our lifetime because of the influence of what they're going to do. Which brings me to a book. I was surprised when I began looking that nobody had written anything of consequence on gerrymanders in Virginia, as if we didn't have them. <laughs> now, it is true that journalists, political scientists, and legal scholars have written on any number of specific uh, episodes of gerrymandering in Virginia history, but none of the rest of us read those people. <laughs> and also, none of those people had connected the dots to see what the story is. Well, we're, you know, we're interested in history. We take a long view. We connect the dots. We find whether there is a story and whether it's a bad good one or a bad one or inspiring or disgusting. Mostly disgusting, by the way. Um, because if we think about gerrymandering in the broad definition that I gave to influence who gets elected, to influence what kind of public policies we have, we get beyond the narrow scope of partisanship and we get, into, we get to see what the purpose was. You recognize that. One of the most famous entry, uh, images in American politics. It appeared in the uh, Boston Gazette in March of 1812 in a newspaper article that described a new Massachusetts state Senate district as misshapen. It looked like a dragon or a salamander or somebody said a gerrymander named for the governor, Elbridge Gerry, signer of the Declaration of Independence. Later in 1812, he was elected vice president of the United States. Now, it, I think it was actually his political allies in the legislature who drew this district to try to guarantee that their faction would be able to control that Senate seat. But anyway, it almost immediately became known as the gerrymander. Elbridge Gerry pronounced his name with a hard G. We pronounced gerrymander with a soft G. I don't know when the change took place, but it did. And from the very beginning, this has been a dirty word. 
in part because it's such a widespread problem. Look up gerrymander on Wikipedia. You can find clicks from there to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of episodes of gerrymandering throughout the United States, throughout the world. This word is universally recognized because it's an almost universal practice of politicians who are trying to protect themselves or to advance their political agendas. It's amazing how widespread that phenomenon is, and it's amazing how far the word gerrymander has gone to cover all of these sins. As I say, they're not all purely partisan. Some people think that this is the first American gerrymander. The 1788 Congressional District Map for Virginia. Three or four people at the time said that Patrick Henry and his allies in the General Assembly who drew this map, deliberately drew this map in such a way as to put James Madison and James Monroe in the same congressional district so that they would have to run against each other. You know, this is 1788. This is immediately after the ratification convention in Virginia in which James Madison led the team that argued on behalf of ratification of the Constitution and Patrick Henry led the team that argued against ratification of the Constitution. Here's the district. District number five, James Madison and James Monroe both lived in that district. Monroe had opposed ratification of the Constitution. The theory was that Patrick Henry thought that Monroe could defeat Madison and keep the friends of the Constitution out of Congress. And there's not much evidence for this, actually. There were some people who complained about it, but there's really no evidence of motivation. And besides, that's not a misshapen district. You could draw the districts any number of ways and put Madison in a district with a more famous and formidable opponent of the Constitution than Monroe. In hindsight, this looked like a really remarkable event of putting two future presidents in the same congressional district to run against each other. But Monroe was not nearly so well known as Madison. And Monroe was not nearly so highly regarded then as he became after he served as a United States Senator and as ambassador to France and as ambassador to Great Britain and as governor of Virginia twice and as secretary of war and secretary of state and president and president of the Virginia Constitutional Convention of 1829. Now, in hindsight, that looked like Madison was facing an extraordinarily formidable opponent but there were lots of other people living in that district or in counties adjacent to that district who would have been just as formidable an opponent as Monroe. So we don't have Henry Manders. <laughs> we do have, however, what I call the great gerrymander of 1830. The Constitutional Convention of 1829 and 30 specified 
new districts for our members of the Senate and the House of Delegates. They did it by dividing the state into four regions and assigning a certain number of members of each house to each region. These regions were based on a tax districts that had been formed way back in the 1780s, modified a little bit in, in 1817. What they did, in short, was to make sure that the two districts east, east of the Blue Ridge would permanently be able to elect majorities in both houses of the General Assembly. Even though the members of the convention knew simply by looking at the census returns of the previous years, that within a decade, a majority of white Virginians were going to live west of the Blue Ridge. They nevertheless gave a permanent majority of members of both houses of the General Assembly to what was going to be, very soon, a minority of white Virginians. Why do they do such a wicked thing? Well, it was no secret at the time that they did this in order to protect the interests of slave owners and the institution of slavery. Throughout the decades before the Civil War, people who owned few or no slaves in Virginia constantly complained about the influence of what they call the slave power in controlling the state government. People who owned slaves feared that people who did not would be in favor of high taxes on slave property so that they would pay low taxes on other property. And you know what? Those slave owners were right. And those people who criticized the slave owners were right also because they revised this map in the Constitutional Convention of 1850 and 51. And at the time, those very same people put a whole series of protections for slavery into the state constitution, one of which placed a limit on the market value of slaves for taxation purposes. In 1851, they made sure that people who did not own slaves could not tax slavery so as to make it unsustainable. Now, they did award people west of the Blue Ridge a very small majority in the House of Delegates. Very small majority. I mean, there was a huge white majority west of the Blue Ridge. 60 or 70,000 more white people lived west of the Blue Ridge than east of it. 60% of the state senate was to be elected east of the Blue Ridge by that majority. The state senate becomes the impregnable fortress for the preservation of slavery. That was not partisan. Whigs and Democrats both were in favor of it. Whigs and Democrats both opposed it. It was entirely about slavery, poisoning the pot. Now, of course, the Civil War did away with slavery. The slave regime was replaced with another regime of white supremacy, known at the time and later as Jim Crow. And so we get new 
schemes of legislative representation in order to guarantee white supremacy. Right here in Richmond at one time, I think this was in the early 1890s, I've forgotten the date, they redrew the city council district boundaries within Richmond. Now, Richmond was very heavily segregated by race in residential areas. No surprise, it still is. African-Americans had been winning election to the city council from Jackson Ward. So what do they do? They redraw the boundaries of the electoral districts and distribute the black majority in Jackson Ward into adjacent districts so that every city council district in the city had a white majority. No more black members of the city council from 1895 to 1948. That is a gerrymander. Throughout the entire first half of the 20th century, um, the infamous old Harry Byrd organization that dominated the Democratic Party made sure that areas with large black populations had very few voters and that the white people in those districts would be disproportionately represented in the General Assembly. General uh, Jerry Manders went from protecting the interests of slavery to protecting the interests of white supremacy. The suppression of voters and the rigging of legislative districts is what gave the Democratic, the Byrd organization control over the Democratic Party and over the state of Virginia for 40 years. And actually, for the 40 years before that, the same thing happened, it just wasn't Harry Byrd's organization. So you have, you have almost 80 years of one political faction within one political party dominating the state government. Gerrymanders and reduction of voting are the ways that they did that. Do you realize that during the first half of the 20th century, a smaller proportion of adult Virginians voted than in any other state in the country? or in any other country in the world that had or pretended to have a representative democracy. Gerrymanders, skewing electoral districts to favor some people and disfavor others was one of the main tools that they used in order to maintain that dominance. Now suddenly in the 1960s, everything changed. In the 1960s, you get the Civil Rights Act, you get the Voting Rights Act, you get an immense set of reforms associated with the Civil Rights Movement, and simultaneously, you get something we call the Representation Revolution. This was a series of federal court cases that at bottom said this, all voters should be equal, one person, one vote. You cannot give 50 people in one jurisdiction an ability to elect a member of the legislature and 4,000 people in another district an ability to elect one member of the legislature. That's not equal voting. It violates the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. As the Chief Justice of the United States wrote at the time, representatives represent people, not acres or trees or economic interests. The representation revolution knocked the props out from under uh, the old scheme of malapportionment that allowed white minorities to control the General Assembly. 
or at least white minorities who came from black majority portions of the state. White minority politicians who came from black majority portions of the state. That's how the Byrd organization controlled things. But suddenly, if all the legislative districts have to be of equal size, the pie cuts up differently. The pie cuts up very differently because, in fact, in some places, you had, we had multi-member districts then. I mean, the, the senior people in the audience may remember this. You know, uh, there would be a district out in the mountains where there's not many people. Three or four counties would have a delegate. Richmond had eight, and they would all be elected at large. And they were all white until the end of the 1970s. They were all white Democrats until, they were all white bird Democrats until the end of the 1970s. But suddenly, if all the districts have to be equal in population, you can't do that anymore. So in, in, finally, in 1982, uh, Virginia abolished this multi-member district scheme and tried to, thereafter to create legislative districts in which every district had, as nearly as possible, an equal number of people. They actually put that in the new state constitution in 1970. Every electoral district, Congress, Senate, House of Delegates, should have the same population as nearly as is practicable. So what does that mean? It means with the unequal distribution of white people and black people across the landscape, with the unequal distribution of Democrats and Republicans across the landscape, that in some places they're bound to elect Republicans, and in other places they're bound to elect Democrats, and in other places it's going to be competitive. Shrewd observers predicted at the time that this was going to bring back the gerrymander. You do what they accused Patrick Henry of doing, and you divide up the black votes into several districts with white majorities so you don't get any black people elected. Or you divide up the Republican votes in several districts with Democratic majorities so you don't get any Republicans elected. And indeed, that's exactly what happened. Every single Virginia redistricting law since 1961 has been challenged in court, many of them successfully because of this partisan motivation that violated principles of the state constitution or principles of the federal constitution or the unbelievably complex requirements of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. This is what the congressional districts looked like in 1971 when the General Assembly got through redistricting. Look at District 4. Answer me a question. Does that violate the state constitution, which requires that all districts be compact in shape? Well, no, you might could say District 5 is fairly good. District 3 looks quite good. What's going on here? You can't tell from looking at the map. 
But I remember this. I was there. When the Democratic-controlled General Assembly drew this map early in 1971, they moved a Republican congressman who lived in the south end of the Sixth District into the Ninth District, which already had a Republican congressman. So you put two Republicans in one district, at least one of them is going to lose. And you have an open seat in the Sixth District, which a Democrat might win. They did the same thing with the Eighth and Tenth Districts both of which had Republican congressmen. They moved the district line so that one of those districts then had two Republican congressmen and the other was open and available to the Democrats. That's partisan gerrymandering at its purest or impurest form. But what about District 4? What in the world is going on there? The southwestmost county in that district is Appomattox. Appomattox had a Democratic congressman. Fifth District also had a Democratic congressman. If you tried to make the Fourth District more compact, you would have to lop off Appomattox County and put it in the Fifth District. So then you would, you'd have two Democratic congressmen in the same district and you would be killing off one of your own Democratic members. Now, federal courts rule that this redistricting was unconstitutional, but not because it was too partisan, because the population inequality was too great. So the General Assembly came back to town and redistricted the House of Representatives so that it would look like this. Look how far Appomattox County is from the new 4th District. These districts, same number of districts, had about equal numbers of population per each. As it happens, the Watkins Abbott, the 4th Congressional District representative, decided to retire, so they didn't need to protect him anymore. They weren't going to put him in a district with another Democratic congressman. But you see how very different the districts are just because of the partisan motivations. Now this is the 1991 congressional district map for Virginia. Not very compact. It had equal population. It met all the criteria of the state constitution met the criteria of the U.S. Constitution. And for a long time, this district stood as it shows up here. This districting stood as it shows up here. This is very partisan gerrymandering, though, because the third district The third district was deliberately drawn in order to create a congressional district with a black majority so that for the first time <clears throat> since the 1880s, the state could have a black member of Congress. 
Now, this district has been challenged in court several times, and it's been changed several times. Look at this detail. Look at what happens around Richmond. The third, the seventh districts, they wrap up like a, like a ball of snakes. <laughs> Federal judges said this was intolerable. This, they said, was a racial gerrymander to favor the election of a black member of the House of Representatives. Voting Rights Act says you cannot use race as a principal factor in redistricting. Federal courts have finally redrawn this district just a few years ago. But look at that. That's, that's really bizarre. <laughs> and it was done for a purely partisan purpose. The Democrats did this in order to elect a black member of the House of Representatives, and they succeeded. That same year, they redistricted the Senate. And here we get, this is the southeast corner of the state. Are these districts compact? Do they not violate the state constitution's requirement for compactness? <laughs> the reason they did this was to create a second black majority state senate district in Virginia. Somebody sued and said, this violates the state constitution. The population's equal. That's, that's, that's okay. You've got one senator from each district. That's okay. You get an opportunity for black voters to elect a black senator. You can't object to that on constitutional terms. But they're not compact. Supreme Court of Virginia ruled on this case. Guess what they did? They said, well, you have so many things to think of when redistricting. You have to think about population. You have to think about city and county boundaries and voting precincts. And you have to think about making sure you don't violate the Voting Rights Act. Um, you can't do all of that and be compact. And although they said, these districts are not ideal from a point of view of compactness. I mean, these districts are more than 150 miles from end to end. The Supreme Court of Virginia said, well, that's okay. Something similar happened just last year with some House of Delegates districts. I don't have a map of them. It, it, it looked like a bowl of spaghetti. It just wasn't any good. Um, but there was a, a dozen districts that stretched from Richmond down to Hampton Roads. Um, that were configured in order, now this is really strange, Republicans and black Democrats configured these districts to guarantee the election of 10 or 12 black Democratic members of the House of Delegates. They did that because of the Doggone Voting Rights Act, which pushes and pulls in different directions. Part of the Voting Rights Act says you cannot use race as a uh, major factor in gerrymandering. But another section says you cannot district in such a way that historically aggrieved minorities would lose opportunities to elect members of the assembly. So they packed 
black members into these dozen districts, they elected black members of the legislature, stood the test of the Voting Rights Act. But what happens to all those neighboring districts, of which there are upwards of 20? If you're moving black people out of those districts into the ones along the James River in order to increase the black population there, what you're doing is you're making those other districts whiter. And surprise, surprise, those other districts began electing larger numbers of white Republicans. The law of unintended consequences worked in, or, or maybe it's just the double-edged sword. Partisan gerrymandering, racial gerrymandering that benefited black Democrats benefited more white Republicans. This got into the federal courts. And just last spring, uh, the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia redrew that whole bunch of lines, said it was too racial. Supreme Court of the United States approved that decision twice. I mean, this makes a lot of difference. Uh, my wife and I, with no election and no new laws, got moved from a district with a white male Republican delegate into a district with a black female Democratic delegate. I mean, that changes the political context in which our neighborhood exists. There are so many conflicting things at work with gerrymandering that it just drives everybody crazy. The temptations to do this for partisan purposes are too great. Because if, you know, if, if, if if a fox gets in the hen house, it's going to eat a chicken. Everybody knows that. If politicians get in the majority, they're going to put the screws to the opposition. That's commonplace. But let's think about one more level of wickedness. <laughs> we think about partisan gerrymandering as something that Democrats do to Republicans or Republicans do to Democrats. And it's absolutely true. You know, in the second half of the, 19, of the 20th century, Democratic legislators deliberately made it difficult for Republican voters to elect Republican legislators. There's no secret about this. When finally Republicans did get a majority in the legislature, Republican legislators made it difficult for Democratic voters to elect Democratic legislators. We've been in that position now for almost 20 years. Now the Democrats are back in the majority. Will they retaliate under the theory that uh, turnabout is unfair play? Well, they may. They may also decide that it's time to put a stop to this zero-sum game and submit to us, the voters, a constitutional amendment that would create a nonpartisan redistricting commission that would make this kind of political gamesmanship much more difficult. That's why this election we just had was so important, because either the Democrats will gerrymander, and that will have very long-term consequences, or we'll get a constitutional amendment that will have very different, very long-term consequences. One or the other of those is bound to happen. Think about it this way. A partisan gerrymander is like changing the rules of baseball to allow the home team four strikes per out and four outs per inning 
and give the visiting team three strikes per out and three outs per inning. Now, the visiting team would theoretically be able to win, and it sometimes would, like Democrats did last month. But it ain't fair. It's at a permanent, it puts one team at a permanent disadvantage. And if there's anything good about baseball, it's that the rules are supposed to be fair so that everybody has a chance to win based on his or her own talents and abilities. In a representative democracy, we should have a fair system that allows voters to elect the representatives who represent them. As is often said in this context, in a representative democracy, representatives, excuse me, in a representative democracy, voters should choose their representatives. Representatives should not choose their voters. And that's exactly what happens with partisan gerrymandering. Now, I'm not going to preach anymore, sir, and I've probably gone on too long anyway. Um, let's have a discussion. Or if anybody wants to ask questions or throw rocks or... Um, <laughs> these, these things actually work much better when we talk about what's interesting and important to you rather than what I think you should think is interesting and important. Uh, there's a couple of people in the aisles with microphones. Um, Please uh, use one of the microphones to ask a question so that everybody can hear the question and identify yourself to them. You know who I am. I want to know who you are. There's a question down here in about the third or fourth row. Two questions down here. Oh, okay, one in the back first. I didn't, sorry, I didn't see that. Um, this is very interesting, but I have a question about the um, compactness as a feature. When I looked at those districts in the western part of the state, they were a lot bigger, and I'll bet some of them were 150 miles from end to end. Shouldn't that matter there as well? It should matter there, but you have to remember that the population of the state is not evenly distributed across the state. So in many of the western counties, there are just not as many people who live there. So it takes a larger number of counties uh, to have the requisite population. So you can't judge by size. Uh, yeah, but no, you judge by the numbers of people who live there. Uh, you know, we had another um, case uh, concerning compactness come before the Supreme Court of Virginia quite recently. And at that time, they, you know, everybody brings in computer experts now, and they bring in lawyers, and they bring in all these people who, who can manipulate election data in ways that I find utterly mysterious and completely frightening. It turns out that statisticians, bless their hearts, statisticians have figured out more than two dozen different ways of measuring whether a shape is compact. <laughs> okay, wait, no, no, you think about it. How do you measure compactness? Uh, some of them are a ratio between length and breadth. Some of them are a ratio between the perimeter of a district and a circle that contains the same area. Because a circle is the most compact shape there is. But you can't district the state by circles. I mean, you leave out all those little holes. <laughs> and besides, they can't all be the same size. Anyway, so this case went and went to the Supreme Court of Virginia about, about a year and a half ago. And the Supreme Court said, you know, we don't know what to do. 
we have all of these different measurements. By some measurements, some districts are compact. By other measures, those same districts are not compact. There is no recognized legal definition of compactness or how to measure it. Now, if General Assembly or Congress would endorse a specific measurement for ascertaining compactness, then courts would have something to go on. I mean, courts could be bold. They could say, that ain't compact. Go out and bring me a way to prove that some other district is properly compact. But they didn't do that. The Supreme Court of Virginia declined to do that. In the same way that the Supreme Court of the United States, after this book actually was at the printing office, the Supreme Court of the United States said, we cannot measure degrees of partisanship. How much partisanship is too much? How do you measure it? Was it deliberate or was it inadvertent? Was it on its face too much or just by the way that it was? We don't know how to measure this. Therefore, we can't. Do not bring these cases to federal courts. We will not hear them. I mean, this is tough stuff. How do you measure compact? I mean, you can measure numbers. You can count. So you can tell about equality. But these other things are more elusive. Some couple of questions down at the front. My name is Tom Van Alken. You, I want a name. You seem to favor this uh, nonpartisan uh, commission to end gerrymandering. I, I suggest that what that d will likely do is simply measure, the, move the whole thing out from the public's view and the General Assembly into this commission, where the real struggle will be to determine who controls the commission. And then you'll get the same uh, gerrymandering results we presently get. That's always a possibility. Um, the, the proposed commission is, 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 has a very complicated setup and membership. And it's, in my view, it's far from ideal. But the one saving grace in this commission idea is it, you know, it's going to have members of both parties of the General Assembly will be members of the commission. Half the members of the commission will be General Assembly members, selected by General Assembly members. The other half of the commission will be people. The, the constitutional amendment requires what it calls a supermajority, so that you have to have members of both parties and members of both parties in the General Assembly agree to the final product. So that, that, I think that reduces. It doesn't eliminate, but I think it reduces part of the problem. In a, whatever the uh, commission proposes, the General Assembly, under the state constitution, will still have the responsibility to pass it into law, but without a chance to amend it. Who are the other members besides the General Assembly members of a commission? Okay, may use up the rest of our time, but who are the other members of the commission? Yeah, well, the, if I remember correctly, the Proposed amendment says that there will be two members of each party of each house that the leadership in the assembly selects. A panel of retired state judges will then nominate 16 citizens. 
leaders of the two political parties in the House and the Senate will select eight of those 16. So there's a lot of political influence in the selection of members. That's, as I say, that's far from ideal. It's also sort of unavoidable because otherwise the General Assembly would never have proposed it. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, no, that's, that's just the reality of things. Um, so, um, you know, this is, this, this is patterned on a, a couple of recent, very recent experiments in a couple of Western states, and we don't really have a track record on how that would work. It's also, just want to correct one thing, it's not a nonpartisan commission, it's a bipartisan commission. Picking a fine point. Another question? Yeah. Um, wonderful idea to, um, to if, if I hope we will see passage of the constitutional amendment. Uh, but I wonder if you could say a word about the McDonnell Commission 10 years ago. Governor McDonnell believed strongly that we needed a citizens commission and when the legislature would not give it to him, he simply appointed an advisory one Everyone said that they would be deadlocked and totally ineffective. Instead, that commission worked together across party lines and came up with a very plausible set of maps. Do you want to say a word about whether you think that may influence um, the legislature and perhaps voters next fall? Oh, I don't know one way or the other about that. Uh, I don't go seek Governor McDonald's recommendations for things I want to see pass right now. <laughs> I mean, Governor Battle proposed something similar in 1950, but uh, the legislature completely ignored those recommendations. Um, if you don't put something into the state constitution, you have not made a permanent change. I don't know, One Virginia 2021, if you don't know who that is, it's a large coalition of people from all over the state, bipartisan, nonpartisan, whatever you want to call them, legal experts, uh, politicians, uh, some people on the far right, some people on the far left, whose sole objective has been to end hyperpartisan gerrymandering in Virginia, to bring us uh, either through uh, a court decision or legislation or a constitutional amendment, a permanent change that would reduce the likelihood or effect of partisan gerrymandering. So as a, even though I think this amendment is, is far from ideal, it's much better than I think where we are. And I don't trust an advisory commission with no tools. It's a nice idea, but they're not the ones that will pass something. Gentleman in the orange coat. Yeah. My, my name is John Hamilton. I'm going to put out something totally different. You mentioned that voters should be able to choose their politicians, politicians not choose their voters. That's not original with me. I wish yeah, it were. I realize that, yeah. but why not eliminate districts and go to some sort of ranked voting where you could vote for any one of 11 representatives within the state? Proportional representation. Yeah. This but is but you could, but effectively, the voter could select their district. 
Yeah, I don't know how you'd make that work. Uh, in a way, it resembles um, the way I understand the elections of members of the Knesset works in Israel, is that you vote for members of a, you vote for a party. And that determines which party gets how many members of the Israeli parliament. We have state lines that complicate that. We have a lot of case law, we have a lot of uh, statute law that complicates that. I know it's, it's an intriguing idea, but I haven't yet seen anybody with a proposal that could make it work. We also have a long tradition in, in the United States, going all the way back to early colonial times, that your representative ought to be a local somebody. You know, a chance to, to know you and to know something about the conditions uh, in your community. And if you're going to send somebody to the legislature who's going to be voting on things like schools and appropriations for money and public health, uh, you want somebody who actually knows how it's likely to work out in your neighborhood. I'm, I, I'm, I don't oppose. I just think that there are so many obstacles in the way that if we wait to try to figure that out, they'll gerrymander us again. <laughs> and it, it, you know, it, this, this is not Democrats doing something to Republicans or Republicans doing something to Democrats. It's politicians doing something to voters. Us, Democrats, independents, Republicans, socialists, whatever you've got. Voters are the real victims here. A uh, question I, on? Right here. Um, my name is Laura Lank. I'm in the infamous 7th District with all the shenanigans going on over there. But my question is, since this upcoming census is going to be the first one that will be online, and since we all have left footprints of our online presence, will it not then be even more tempting to slice and dice the data to choose the voters? It will be much easier. But the fact of the matter is, uh, computer technology and scheming minds have been doing this for 30 or 40 years to such an extent now that it is possible, if you want to gerrymander an agent, to get below voting district detail and know this street is likely to vote Democratic and that street is likely to vote Republican and this alley over here is competitive. And you can actually boot people across boundary lines of districts using this computer software um, with great ease, because they know how every, every precinct has voted in the last like 40 years in every election. And so it, that the technology there has got way ahead of ordinary people, especially me. So um, what the census has done, taken online, I don't know. That strikes me as a terrible idea, but it's too late. I mean, what if you don't have a computer? What if you're afraid of computers? What if you don't know how to use computers? be easy to hide. And what else are they going to know about you? Yeah, a question in the back? I think I'm live here. My name's Janet Clement. Um, I, I'm not sure I know enough about this to ask this question or posit something, but... Well, I'll just make up an answer right. then. And <laughs> Don't not only the American voters, but really internationally, if you look at what's going on in Hong Kong, where things are so controlled in terms of people and how they're supposed to vote. Don't we keep confounding these systems of politicians? 
to confine us. I think our elections, our last legislative elections here in Virginia were supposedly under the power of the last political party in charge, and yet there were tremendous changes that are influencing our national elections too. Before I answer, I will mention that there was a man doing research in the Library of Virginia this week. I had lunch with him on Monday. Um, he's researching the American Revolution. He's teaching at the University of Hong Kong. And I asked him, how were things there? And he said, you know, it's a lot more comfortable to research a revolution than it is to live in one. <laughs> I don't know for sure the answer to the question. As I say, this, the process becomes so complicated that who's maneuvering boundaries for what purpose? What are their objectives? What do they want to achieve? What do I want to achieve? So I think I'm going to have to punt on that one. I mean, as I say, I could make up something, but you, you don't hear that. That question on the aisle? Sorry. Uh, could you speak a little bit about <clears throat> the competing dynamics of wanting to concentrate minorities so that <clears throat> they can elect uh, <clears throat> a person that represents them in terms of their minority status, or, or dispersing minority? Uh, th those seem at cross purposes. Sometimes the complaint is, well, you've broken up the minorities into uh, so many districts that uh, nobody can be elected from their point of view. Uh, well, all right, we'll put them all in one district. No, you're reducing their chances that would, that would uh, be perhaps helped by dispersing them into two or three districts. So you, you see what I... I I trust you see what I'm, I oh, yeah, trust that, I've expressed clearly what that, I'm saying. That is precisely uh, the problem for contemplating race or partisanship in districting. If you, if you pile a lot of African-Americans into a district, it pretty much guarantees an African-American representative. This kind of thing happens often enough with black people or with Democrats or Republicans, and it's called packing. This is, this is the official term now for packing a lot of people into a district to get them out of other districts. The other thing is breaking up that congregation of people and dispersing them into adjacent districts. That's called cracking. You crack that population there. Uh, these are, are, are widely discussed in the literature of political science and in uh, the legal history literature. And there are also things that are very hard to measure. A partisan gerrymander is, is sort of like Justice Potter Stewart's pornography. You can recognize it when you see it, even though you may have a difficult time formulating a definition that you can measure something by. Packing and cracking are very commonplace. And the reason being is that almost everywhere in the country, races of people are distributed unevenly across the landscape. And in many places, partisan identifications are distributed unevenly across the landscape. 
I mean, there are proposals that you should just put all of the population data in a computer and tell it to spit out 100 House of Delegates districts of equal population with no other criteria at all. You could do that. But we need some human judgment in the process, too. So for instance, say you're in the western part of the state, which mountains and valleys, mountains and valleys. Where should a boundary go? Should a boundary go along the crest of a mountain on the theory that people who live on the separate sides are more likely to share interests with each other? Or should you go down the middle of the valley where there's a river on the theory that the people in the mountain each form a community of interest? Or do you want to keep city and county boundaries and magisterial district boundaries um, as the grid work for your legislative boundary? We already know what those are. They make sense in a certain way. We're comfortable with them. But you're still going to have to bisect some of those to get equal population. You could do these things by computer. Nobody wants to. Or almost nobody wants to. Certainly no politicians want to. Because, you know, redistricting is a political process. It always has been. It probably always will be. And there are judgments that public officials are elected to make. Is a river a boundary or the center of a community of interest? That's a really important thing to think about. And it's not going to be the same answer everywhere. Yep. One more question? OK. If it's a long question, it'll be a short answer, vice versa. Um, I believe that some states have tried um, redistricting. Um, I believe California, for example, has limited each district to have a certain number of sides to reduce the complexity of the, of the gerrymandered districts that you're talking about. Do you have any comments about whether that's been successful or not? Uh, it's too new to know for sure. Uh, how do you measure how many is two sides? You know, how many sides are too many? Uh, a circle has one side. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, this is somewhat uncharted territory. Uh, the Western states that have put in commissions of this sort have not had a long experience of using them to see what the gains are and what the pitfalls are. Be nice if Virginia would decide to be a pioneer and try to figure out some of this stuff. Have we used up all of our time, Adam? I thank you for coming, and I, I particularly, I particularly want to thank you for asking really good questions. I take that as a compliment. Maybe I was interesting, and you didn't, and you didn't snore either. That's two good things. Thank you.